Acts 16, 4 through 10. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I set out teacups and a plate of cupcakes on the linoleum floor. <laughs> I set out teacups and a plate of cupcakes on the linoleum floor of the Chicago Parks building and took a deep breath. It was my last day teaching my first ever improv class. The course had started eight weeks prior. Originally, we had said that the minimum number of students was six, but we decided to take a gamble and do it with five because this was the very first class offered at the theater that I was working with. The first ever class of the new training center and it was in my 27 year old hands. On the first day of class, one student had mentioned they'd need to miss the last week of class. And that might be no problem for a different course, but our improv curriculum was unique and that it promised a performance opportunity at the end of every level. Typical training centers require four or five levels of study before you're given a show. Had I known we'd be missing one of the students for the performance, we would have postponed the class for more students, but now we were already in it. A standard long-form improv scene consists of two characters creating the scene and making everything up on the spot, and then everyone else stands behind them on stage in what we call a back line. There are different ways that the back line can support the scene that is happening in front of them, but hands down, the most important role of the back line is to end the scene. At the moment someone on the back line senses that the scene has come to its end, they act as a human theater curtain by running across the stage in what we call a sweep edit, or just an edit for short. And after that edit, the actors in the scene rejoin the back line, and the actor who ran across takes position on stage to start a brand new scene as a brand new character and someone else from that back line will just step in and join them as a scene partner. All of this is done without talking or signaling. The actors just respond to the moment and each other. It is through these transitions from scene to scene that a team builds an actual show. Now, you don't want to edit too early before the scene finds a satisfying resolution or a big laugh line, but you definitely don't want to edit too late and leave your teammates out there just hanging out to dry, begging for mercy, because good scenes can quickly go bad if the edit is missed. It can take years to really build confidence in your edit timing, but eventually it becomes instinctually. 
to, to recognize the biggest laugh of a scene in the moment rather than in hindsight. And once you sense that moment and you let the laughter land and then you have to just start running. You tell your feet to go before you know what your character will be or what the scene will be about or what your first line will be or who will join you. You just, you just need to run out there and figure it out as it's happening because your priority is saving the scene that's currently happening. Poorly timed edits can ruin the comedic rhythm of the whole show, which is why having a healthy number of people on the back line to carry the burden of editing is especially great when starting out. The fewer performers on stage, honestly, like the higher caliber of performance and experience needed. Most professional shows use a minimum of four performers, and if anything less than that would be at a very like established performer level. Having a four-person long-form show after one improv course is basically unheard of. I had named that challenge from day one so that the class knew why focusing on supporting each other was way more important than being the funniest person on stage. An improv show is collaborative. Like, your success is intertwined. Each week I'd call out, there's the edit! So they'd begin to sense the rhythm of when they should be running across the stage. It was going to be hard, but I was hopeful. It was our final class and rehearsal time together. In two days, they'd be performing in front of a real audience. I had brought in this ridiculously over-the-top tea party with cupcakes to celebrate that accomplishment. And also because... I needed to have a hard conversation, and I think cupcakes help. Their fourth classmate had just been assigned some last-minute travel for work and had to miss our last class as well as the performance. We were down to three improvisers. I broke the news to the three men holding cupcakes. I told them they were funny, They'd done great work in class. They genuinely cracked me up. But this show, I said, it's going to be hard and you can't just sort of commit to it. When you are on the back line, it's just you now. You have to commit so hard to not abandoning the people out there. They need you. You have to save them. And one of you in the scene will have to do back-to-back -back scenes. You have to save the person who gave you the edit. You don't get a break. You're either in the scene or you're actively looking for the moment to edit the scene. The other two people on stage are depending on you at every single moment. I believe you can do this show, but you have to really want to do this show. And it's okay if you want to cancel it. They were quiet for a moment. And then Benny said, I think I still want to do it. Me too, chimed in James. Well, I'm not going to leave you guys hanging, so I'm in too, but I'm definitely scared, said Tom. Benny and James agreed with him immediately. I asked what they were most scared of, and they said, of chickening out. And another said, of feeling stupid. And I said, well, I guess the good news is you don't have to worry about if you'll feel stupid, because I promise you, you will. That's part of this. And we laughed together and we finished our cupcakes and we got to work. 
As I watched their practice scenes, I could sense their fear. Reaching for a shocking character to get a laugh instead of a character grounded and supporting the scene. As a director, I knew that at a final rehearsal, my role is no longer to give constructive feedback. My role is now giving positive feedback because they needed to take the reins from me and own that the show was their own and have the confidence that they needed to perform it. My brain told me it was no longer my role to correct, but it wasn't sitting well with me. I paused them and I invited them back to our tea and cupcake circle. I said that I understood the casually homophobic character that had popped up in the last scene didn't represent what I thought the character believed. I paused them and invited them back to our tea and cupcake circle. I said that I understood the casually homophobic character that had popped up in the last scene didn't represent what I thought the actor believed, but I did think it represented playing from a place of fear. To be honest, I said, I know that you will have comedy instructors that will disagree and say that nothing is sacred, so it doesn't matter what you joke about or how you joke about it, because that's all I've ever heard from comedy instructors, but I'm not that instructor. Of course things are sacred. We're human beings. What and who we love is sacred to all of us. So I want to challenge you to build your characters around the things that matter to them instead of the things that they're against or afraid of. How immediately more interesting is a scene where we know what's important to a character? Let's decide together that we aren't just creating safety for each other. We're creating safety for every person who might walk into this space, okay? We will only create worlds together out of our bravery and love, not fear. Fear cannot drive the bus of this show. What do you think about that? They agreed. And I've been thinking about your fear of chickening out and feeling stupid, and I have an idea. I proposed that they just stare those fears down at the top of the show and get it out of the way. I knew they weren't singers, so I asked them if they'd start the show by asking the audience to stand for the national anthem. And then the three of them sing the Star Spangled Banner a cappella with full commitment. If they can make it through that, I was convinced they could be fully inoculated for the show. What could possibly go wrong? It's the boldest ask I've ever made of another human being. It To actively live what sounded like a nightmare that you would tell your therapist about and somehow they agreed. The OODA loop is a theory developed by US military strategist and Air Force Colonel John Boyd. According to Boyd, decision-making happens in a recurring cycle of O, observe, O, orient, D, decide, and A, act, O-O-D-A, OODA. Because I'm not in the military, I think of it like running into a jump rope or double dutch. You observe the jump rope going around. You orient yourself to the rhythm and start keeping time with your body. You decide that you'll go in at the next time the rope hits the ground. And you act when you run in and start jumping. Observe, orient, decide, act. 
an individual or organization that can process this cycle quickly, moving from observation to action as events unfold more rapidly than an opponent can get inside their opponent's decision cycle and gain the advantage by causing their opponent's cycle to continuously start over with observation and orienting before they can get to deciding and acting. The approach explains how agility can overcome raw power in dealing with human decision makers. In my everyday life, my greatest opponent is usually me. Not knowing what my final destination is can leave me stuck in my observe and orient loop without decision and action. Keeping rhythms with jump ropes I'm not running into because I haven't decided Not knowing what my final destination is can leave me stuck in my observe and orient loop without decision and action. Keeping rhythms with jump ropes I'm not running into because I haven't decided what jump rope song I want to sing. For my improvisers, they were scared of getting stuck observing and orienting and missing the edits. My hope was that the national anthem would jumpstart their OODA loops in the middle at decision and action and help keep them from getting stuck cycling through observation and orientation. Some decisions in life have high stakes where slow dis Some decisions in life have high stakes where slow precision is warranted and wise. But in many cases, a good decision made timely is more valuable than a perfect decision made late. Often, the simple act of starting is the most important part. We don't discern where we are going once in our lives. Enter a destination into a divine Google Maps app and then follow a perfect step-by-step -step path. Life doesn't work like that. God doesn't work like that. Google Maps doesn't even work like that. There will always be reorienting as we go. And with life, even the destination can change. We have to make steps without knowing the full plan. And even as someone who has improvised for over two decades, I still wish life came with more maps. But we are the map makers. We will sweep edit careers. We will edit relationships. We will edit dreams and seasons that no longer serve us. We will hear no, but new dreams will come. We will have new visions and often that will happen on the journey, not before the journey. But we are the map makers. We will sweep edit careers, we will edit relationships, we will edit dreams and seasons that no longer serve us. We will hear no, but new dreams will come. We will have new visions, and often that will happen on the journey, not before the journey. Although I believe everything happens, I'm not someone who will ever say that everything happens for a reason. I think there's plenty in this world that happens for no reason. But I also believe that nothing is beyond redemption. Or as Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh would put it, everything can be composted to grow something new.
Paul and Silas were already on the road when this vision came. The places they had thought they were going were feeling close to them. The places they had thought they were going were feeling closed to them. This vision will lead them to meeting Lydia and Philippi and to visiting Thessalonica and new churches and relationships and letters that will become biblical canon in the Christian New Testament. But before this new thing grows in chapter 16, we have to do some composting in chapter 15. Paul says goodbye to Barnabas. They had traveled together for years, but now they are no longer in agreement about what comes next. Barnabas wants to travel one direction and Paul another. Paul doesn't even have a full vision yet of where he is being called to, but he senses it's time to edit the scene. A metaphorical curtain is pulled. I don't imagine that was easy. Transitions hold inherent grief, and I imagine there was perhaps some fear that one of them was choosing a wrong path because they were choosing different paths. Some second guessing within their reorienting. But Paul took a step forward, not knowing what his next scene would be about or what his scene partners would bring or who they would even be. But Paul took a step forward, not knowing what his next scene would be about or what scene partners would join him. And he kept discerning, even as he traveled, open to changing course, open to new things growing from the compost. I love that changing course isn't depicted as failing in this passage. It's part of an ongoing conversation of discernment. Paul tries new directions, and he has new conversations with people, and his spirit senses when the Holy Spirit is saying, nope, and he tries a new direction, and he keeps waiting for that moment when he senses a divine, yes, this way, keep going. And for Paul, that came as a vision of a man in Macedonia calling out to him, needing him. It was then that he knew what direction to go. As the three improvisers took the stage, I gave them a smile and a thumbs up from my seat in the front row, and again I held my breath. The youngest one stepped forward and said, Ladies and gentlemen, please stand for the national anthem. And confused, the crowd slowly obeyed. Without cracking a smile, but certainly cracking voices, the three men sang the star-spangled banner, and they truly committed, and it was gloriously horrible. I couldn't have asked for more. I beamed with absolute pride as I witnessed them laying theirs down. The crowd was silent as they reached for that last note, and then... The crowd began cheering and clapping like they were at a baseball game. I watched the thrill of survival wash over the performers and they ran out and started their scenes. They went into 30 minutes of back-to-back -back scenes and I've seen a lot of improv and I can say confidently that this show was absolutely magic to watch. At the end of the show, they took their bow to the cheers of the audience 
and I ran backstage to hug them all, tears of pride still in my eyes. They were the only ones there who knew the odds that they had just beat. We were the only ones there who knew the odds that they had just beat. As they started to break away to go meet their adoring fans, one stayed behind and said, Hey, Elena, I wanted to say thank you for what you said at rehearsal yesterday. As they started to break away to meet their adoring fans, one stayed behind and said, Hey, Elena, I want to say thank you for what you said at our last rehearsal because actually I'm gay and I know I've been really careful to be ambiguous about that in class because, well, you never know. So anyway, your comment at rehearsal really meant a lot to me. Thank you. He pulled a small bouquet of flowers from behind his back and gave them to me. Everything about that night is so precious to me. Their bravery, their success, their absolute hilarity. But that moment is, it's especially tender. I was there to teach improv comedy, but on the road, without me even realizing it at the time, a new vision had come, a vision of creating a safer space. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for it. I'm sure that over the past few years, we have all had to pivot and make new plans on the road. Maybe transitions and pivots are only associated with loss or disappointment for you right now. Maybe pivots only feel like no's. There is grief. Maybe you feel stunned, afraid to move, afraid of what taking a step could mean. But dreams and visions and divine conversations and new things growing from compost are waiting they will meet you on, on the road. Take a step. To move beyond observing and orienting, we must decide and act. But you don't have to know the final destination to take that first step forward. Perhaps a helpful question to hold right now is, who is crying out to you? Who needs you? Someone you know well? Someone you've just met, someone you've passed by, someone in the news, someone in the mirror, who is crying out to you to come. Take a step toward someone and listen for that divine conversation in your spirit that says, yes, this way, keep going. I'm sure that over the past few years, we've all had to pivot and make new plans on the road. Maybe transitions and pivots are only associated with loss or disappointment for you right now. Maybe pivots only feel like no's. There is grief. Maybe you feel stunned, afraid to move, afraid of what taking a step could mean. But dreams and visions and divine conversations and new things growing from compost are waiting. They will meet you on the road. Take a step. Begin. <laughs>